Greetings and welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your non-robotic co-host, Robert J. Marks, and I'm joined by my capture passing, <laughs> 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 capture passing co-host. He, all of these capture th- tests, he passes and he does it. He does it seamlessly. It's With flying uh, colors. It's really ama- it's really amazing to watch him, Brian Krauss. Uh, we have been we have been talking to Dr. Doug Axe at Biola University about idealism. It's a, a chapter in the new book, Minding the Brain, and that was co-edited by Brian Angus Manouche and me and is available at mindingthebrain.org. You're supposed to mention the website more than once, so mindingthebrain.org. And uh, we're going to continue our dialogue about idealism. And Brian, uh, why don't you start things off with the Inquisition of Dr. X? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. So super brief recap. We, we talked so far in previous episodes about some of the problems that there are with uh, physicalism and also with dualism um, that come about uh, for a variety of reasons, but including uh, some of the findings of modern physics that don't sit that well with this metaphysical picture of the world that of physical reality is this external sort of particle like uh, you know made of building blocks um, thing that, that that makes up the the real world and it, and how idealism presents a different picture um, a different and you and on the end of our last episode you were unpacking a bit about what the sort of the metaphysical pieces of the idealistic world on on idealism what does it look like for uh, me to have an idea of throwing the ball, throwing the ball, and how that passes through from my mind to to this uh, equation that's in the mind of uh, of God um, and so forth. So that is all very interesting. Maybe one one more question on that that I have. Okay, so we have some of the medical physical pieces we have are, of course, we have God in His mind and the the equation that is the represents the world that exists in God's mind. And then separately, we have our own minds um, and a mind per human, maybe per animal. Um, but the, so, so where, you know, in, in a dualist world, I could kind of place where those minds exist because typically you're a mind-body unity of some sort and you have a location within physical space. But where exactly on the idealistic picture do I conceive of all these minds existing? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think, <clears throat> I think though, it is a question that has a residual of physicalism in it, in that when we ask where, we're picturing three-dimensional, we're, we're picturing, tell me, longitude, latitude, altitude. <laughs> uh, so we're picturing something that's part of the physical structure and trying to say where in that Um, what I'm claiming, what the idealist would claim is a mathematical structure. Where in that mathematical structure is um, the mind of of, uh, me or you or anyone else? And I I think the where question is probably retaining a residual of the view that I'm saying is not the correct view and that you're asking me for coordinates maybe. Um, Possibly, yeah, 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 and that's there, there seems to be some sense in which our minds are not in God. We're we're apart from God, right. and his thought, the thoughts of of God are are in God in some sense, and our thoughts are in our minds in some sense. But my thoughts are not in God in that same sense. 
Yeah, it might clarify things just to simply reiterate that the picture that I'm espousing, the picture that I'm uh, trying to describe has a reality consisting of uh, thinkers and their thoughts. We could call them minds or for, the, for, the, for humans, mind, soul, spirit. So there's a whole lot to us other than just thinking. Um, and God is the supreme thinker. So if we say that those things exist and that God is the only thinker who can produce, who can create minds, and this could take us off in a direction of artificial intelligence and all that, but I don't know if we have time for that. If we say that God is the only thinker who's capable of creating minds and the human minds that he's created are capable of creating thoughts, but nothing else. There's nothing else that a human can create. Um, and that the human minds are not God. They're not God's mind. I don't think we have to worry about giving X, Y coordinates. I think we have a system here where if we say God can create human minds and he sees absolutely everything about them, he knows everything about that's going on in my thinking. He knows my thoughts before I think them. And he's capable of carrying out in real time this immensely complex mathematical calculation that is the physical universe and he's capable of interacting directly with human minds to give us perceptions and to uh, read our minds and know what needs to be pushed back into the mathematical calculation i i think the where question uh sort of dissolves away or I, at least i don't see something that's problematic that's left out of that well, if, if, I, if I could jump in, I believe that both in terms of the theory of the Big Bang and in Scripture, that before the creation of the Big Bang, there was no time. Now, that's mind-blowing, imagining a um, something without time. There is no space. And indeed, if God, God did create the universe, he exists outside of time and space. Mm -hmm. uh, that being the case also, we're limited to three spatial dimensions. There's really no reason that, uh, in string theory, I believe they can go up to, you know, 10s, 20s, 30s dimensions. I forget the exact number, but they, can, they go up to a number of dimensions that they say exist here in our world, that they're actually in strings and they're all compactified and stuff. So again, we're kind of numbed by our, our familiarity of... of mm -hmm but in a different way, numbed by our familiarity with things existing in space and time. I don't right. think that, um, that, that, that God and his creation exist in space and time. And it's just mind-blowing to consider something outside of space and time. But yeah. if indeed, if that's the case, then talking about a coordinate is without meaning. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, okay, okay. So let's um, let's take a slightly different, maybe just an application of some of these ideas. Let's go into some of that. So, one one direction we could think about application is how would uh, being an idealist and a scientist in some field, you know, pick pick one, whether you're you know doing math, physics, computer science, neuroscience, how would your, the idealist perspective, do you think, impact the way you did your work? Or, or would it? Is it more just kind of an interpretive thing in the background? So maybe we could picture a chemist or someone who's soldiering along in their career, and then they at some point become an idealist on Saturday. And when they go back mm -hmm. into the lab on Monday, does their, does their work look different? Is that kind of the... Yes, yes. Uh, uh, either, either does their work itself look different or the way they're conceiving 
of their work that would also be interesting i i think i think in um once you uh, granted you're going to spend a lot of time scratching your head on saturday <laughs> but if you resolve it by sunday and you go to you church you probably shouldn't tell all your friends <laughs> right away on monday but just uh, anyway. it, once you get over the wait is this weird i thought it was weird when i first heard about it and the more i think about it the less weird it becomes has been kind of my experience i don't think it there are a few sort of spiritual things that i think it affects but i don't think it would affect your doing your chemistry or your physics or your biology or your astrophysics at all. A, a few more philosophical things that I would say is if on Friday you thought, but here you would, you would have been a materialist or a physicalist on Friday. If on Friday you thought that the physical universe is the base reality um, and maybe you're a particle physicist and you're setting up to do some experiments with a, an accelerator doing something looking at, you know, subatomic particles. If on Friday you thought that was the base reality, that ultimately everything boils down to strings or, or quarks, on Monday, once you've made this transition, you're going to scratch your head a lot and decided, oh, I'm not sure what I'm trying to study so hard here is the base reality. It's not that it's not real, it's that it's not the point. Uh, anymore. So there, there could be that sort of, am I doing, why was I doing what I was doing? And maybe I have a different view of the value of what I was doing. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there isn't value to any of these scientific disciplines, but if you're drilling in on particle physics, thinking that you're finding the essence of reality, I think you're mistaken. And I think mm -hmm. if you became an idealist, you would, you would think likewise. Do you think it would change your, the expectations of, of like what you might be looking for, especially at that quantum level? Like you're, well, like you gave an example of what was it? David Bohm, I think, was motivated to try to reconcile quantum mechanics with a more classical yeah, view. Yeah, he and, tried to come up with a, are you familiar with him, Bob? Did you ever read David Bohm? No. He tried to come up with a deterministic version of, a, a deterministic replacement for quantum mechanics and it, and it didn't succeed. But I think his motivation was, this is so weird. I don't want physics to look like this. So help me think of a, a version of physics where there really are, you know, wave things consist of particles and there's something that explains it deterministically. So I think that if we go to this hypothetical scientist who's become over the weekend an idealist, and maybe they started off as a physicalist last week, and now this week they go to work on Monday and everything is looks different. Um, it, it's not that they would expect to find something different in their experiments, I think. Rather, they would have a different interpretation of the significance of their whole field with respect to the sum total of all of reality. <clears throat> because I imagine many materialist physicists if you're a particle physicist and you're a materialist atheist, you think you're studying the most fundamental things that exist. You think you're you think that your field is defining reality and that everything ultimately is described by what your field describes. And if that person had this sort of transition over the weekend, on Monday they go into work, he or she goes into work and thinks, "Oh, uh particle physics is not it's not going to answer the question of what is the base reality. It's, it's an important 
part of a mathematical structure that has a role in God's plan, but it's not the base reality. Really, these, these beings, God is the base reality, and physics is the substrate, the structure within which his created beings, principally humans, interact, live and move and have their being. I wonder, I wonder how, maybe is it a little different when you talk about neuroscience? Because at this point, you know, we're talking about the, the brain and in some sense, the, the interface between the immaterial mind and I guess on idealism would be the... Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Michael Ignor is a colleague who contributed to the, to the volume, who is a non, he is not a materialist. And I think we had a meeting um, of the mm -hmm. authors for the, for the Mind Brain volume, where he seems to be transitioning from um, being a substance dualist to at least entertaining the value of, of idealism. Yeah, and he likes in particular he is he's a keen on uh, Thomistic hylomorphism, which is a variety of substance dualism. Yeah. Yes, but I remember in this meeting he was saying, "Oh, he is he was yeah, Mike Bolton." Yeah, I remember I'm gonna, we're gonna have him out here to Biola and I'll have more conversation uh, with him in the, in the spring. But yes, if I were a brain person and last week I thought that <clears throat> everything that a human is thinking, everything that a human is perceiving, their consciousness, all of that mental activity is neural functions. On Monday after this transformation over the weekend, I would see the brain more as an interface or as a, it's actually not even the interface. It's like the pre-processor that mm -hmm. does calculations and it might do them in a neural net kind of way. I'm open to that. It's doing calculations, but the end result of those calculations is just a physical state that then God picks up and, and presents the corresponding mental um, experience to the mind. And that's a very different view of what the brain is doing. It's not, it's not less important, but it's not all encompassing. The brain is not the person. The brain is an important organ that does this pre-processing either of incoming signals be before they're presented to the immaterial mind or the pre-processing of motive signals coming from the mind before they become a body action. Yeah. So I suppose as a neuroscientist under this framework, you, you wouldn't really expect to assume you could, you could have a, a complete picture of the computational dynamics of what's going on in the brain. You right. wouldn't expect that to sort of represent the whole, the whole computation or everything that goes into the, you know, a thought or a decision right. or whatever, whatever cognitive thing we're talking about. But if we go back last episode to you and I playing catch with a baseball, um, there is, I think, a profoundly important role for the brain taking what would what would otherwise be a bewildering array to me. If if God were feeding me, okay, here's what this rod and this cone are doing at this moment, I would have no way to make sense of it. So I think the brain is this remarkable organ that's taking this huge flood of data of, of signals, physical signals from rods and cones for visual and putting it through a process that resolves it into something that's ready to be reinterpreted as, as a visual experience and given to the, and given to the human mind.
that strikes me kind of like uh, swarm intelligence, where you cannot look at the behavior of an ant colony by looking at a single ant. Right. Uh, it, there, it, it has a collective emergent behavior, and that's the case with rods and cones. Yeah, and probably neurons in the brain. You have yes. not looking at any single neuron, you would you would have a very weak notion of what a brain is doing, but the whole thing collectively is doing something truly remarkable. But what it's not doing is thinking. It's doing this pre-processing. And we have the capability, we have the capability interesting of analyzing. We have the meta ability of analyzing that processing. Um one of my favorite quotes by Emo Phillips is that I used to think, here's his quote, I used to think that the brain was the most wonderful organ in my body. Then I realized who was telling me this. <laughs> we, we are able to look at what comes from our brain, inclinations to do things, and exercise, if you will, free want or free will on that. Right. And there we could get into, that's tricky territory because... Does because I would say that our mind has inclinations that are apart from anything in our brain, but it's also true that, and I think this can be shown in in uh, things like um, uh, OCD. There there are things where behaviors that become habitual behaviors really do induce a brain change that actually can make the situation more. Uh, set in so that so that these habitual behaviors are being induced by a brain state that's that's sort of pushing you into to these behaviors, but also some of the best work on uh, resolving and treating humans who who struggle with things like this is showing that even though you are going to get this impulse that is maybe coming from a brain state that's pushing you in this direction, you can stand above it. And that's that's the free exactly. one. You can you can stand above it and say, no, I'm not going to do this. And if you do that enough, you can then you will you will benefit from a retraining of, of the brain. Yeah, that gets into neuroplasticity, which is right. something like your friend Michael Egnor would be talking about, I'm sure. Yeah. So interesting. You know, I, in terms of whether or not the quantum mechanics could be challenged, this was uh, famously historically challenged by Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen in the so-called EPR challenge. This was resolved by something called Bell's inequality. And they kept trying to prove Bell's inequality. Now, the, the einstein Podolsky rosen challenge was that quantum mechanics was kind of this emergent behavior that looked random, but underlying it was, you know, it kind of, there, there was something more deterministic going on. It's like you roll a bunch of die a few times, and uh, it looks like the outcome is random, but if you look at the Newtonian mechanics of the way the dice were thrown and uh, how they bounced around, et cetera, you would find out that it was indeed deterministic. So that was their challenge. But Bell came up with a, uh, an inequality, which was experimentally verified. Gosh, I think, uh, yeah, I, I don't know when it was verified, but they kept trying to apply and prove Bell's inequality. Uh, but uh, they finally got an experiment where things didn't collapse. They were having problems maintaining coherence of the experiment. But finally, they got something which nobody could challenge. And I think that the randomness and the inherent randomness of quantum mechanics is pretty well established now because of Bell's inequality. At least the non-causality, yeah. And that was that's in you know recent memory. It was maybe twenty years ago, twenty-five years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't it wasn't that long ago. You're right. Recent if you're old, like I am. Uh, <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. 
we have another uh, interesting chapter in the book by Gary Habermas, where he uh, catalogs and discusses a bunch of fascinating varieties of uh, near-death experiences. Oh, yeah. So this is an interesting uh, example to maybe try to apply idealism to thinking about. So, you know, the, the, there's a bunch of flavors, but let's just kind of imagine the variety, the quote unquote garden variety of, of this, where you're, you know, you are in the operating room looking down on yourself being operated on. Uh, so you're, how, how does it, how do you think through that from an idealist perspective? Yeah. So, um, the first, the, the worldview that that is most going to challenge. So let's take the example, and I've heard these, and I, I have a book, uh, I've read several of these, where you're in the operating theater, um, your heart has stopped, you're sort of clinically dead, maybe, for at least a few seconds. Right. And you have a conscious experience where you're maybe even above the hospital. And I've heard ones like where you see something on the roof of the hospital, like a yeah, there's yeah. a shoe, a pink shoe on the roof of the hospital. And then they revive you. By God's grace, you live on and you talk about this experience and then they go up and there's the there's the pink shoe. So yeah, yeah. what what happened here? Of course, I know a lot of people will say these these are not um, that these are fabricated. I'm certainly willing to believe that they're true. I haven't done independent research on them. Um, what they challenge is a physicalist uh, interpretation of humanity, because clearly, um, if a human mind, soul, spirit can be separate and from the body and conscious, then then that's the end of. It. You can't accept that if you're a physicalist, materialist, because now uh, this would be proof if you accept it no. that um, consciousness doesn't necessarily have to have the physical body as a substrate. It, it can, right. it can, one can be conscious and aware and even perceive true things that can then be validated and verified yeah. outside of your physical body. There's some fascinating examples of like, just to interject another couple of flavors. There's, there's some where you've got a near death experience uh, from a patient who was born blind. And then as part of their experience, their out of body experience, they have sight. Um, they they have sight, and yeah. they see things in color. And yeah. they uh, they come down, and uh, and once once they're resuscitated, they they can describe things, uh, you know, with from their visual perspective. You know, there's a, a great book by Bruce Grayson called After. Now he's a psychiatrist. He spent his life as a medical doctor looking into near death experiences. He founded a journal which addressed near-death experiences. He started a conference which is still meeting on near-death experiences. And uh, it's uh, he ended his book and says, man, there's just no explanation for what goes on, even after all of yeah. these times. I talked to the originator of integrated information theory, Tononi, University of Wisconsin, and he's a uh, neurologist, and we talked about a little bit about near-death experiences. And he says, well, I don't believe in those because I can give you <clears throat> some LSD or some peyote, and you can experience situations like near-death experiences. But just as you pointed out, it doesn't explain all of these things that happen which are beyond a naturalistic explanation, right. like a yeah. blind person seeing or seeing the pink shoe on the roof. So if we loop back to connecting this to idealism, I think the implications are very similar that a substance dualist and an idealist would view these 
quite similarly. It does go back to Brian's question about where is the mind? Because in this case, if we go to the person who was maybe clinically dead for a minute or something, and then has a visual experience from a perspective, maybe hovering yeah. over the hospital. In that case, it's not that I'm going to answer as an idealist. It's not that the mind has a location, but the mind has been given a conscious perception from a uh, vantage point that could, in fact, be located. And, and he, he, this person could say, I was like 30 feet above the hospital, right over here, or I was, or I lifted up from above the bed, I saw myself, and then I was above the hospital. So certainly, the vantage point when you're interacting with um, the physical world can be given a location, but that's different from saying that the mind itself has a location. And I suppose when you're in your body, and the, the this, uh, this equation in God's mind, that's representing the external world, Right. including your body and your brain, uh, that is ordinarily being maintained by God's action in sync with our, you know, in connection with our thoughts. Uh, and then in this case, when you're out of body, um, you, you still are sort of located uh, conceptually within this, uh, you know, from a vantage point within this, um, this equation. It's just that the, the action of God is not, being mediated through brain function, presumably sort of these elements of the brain function yeah. equation. Yeah, yeah. That is just a little more direct. Yeah. Somehow. Well, this has been, this has been a great, um, a great conversation about Dr. X's chapter and in, um, idealism in the new book, minding the brain, Doug, I wonder if you could just offer us a summary of the things we've talked about, the summary and the gist of your chapter in a nutshell. Yeah, so really it's a chapter that, that tries to introduce idealism with the assumption that it's probably a foreign concept to a lot of people. Um, and the chapter does that by interacting with two alternative worldviews. One is physicalism, the idea that there isn't anything other than the physical universe, and the other being substance dualism, which is the idea that um, there is a physical universe, which is hard material stuff, and within it are human bodies, which are physical, and within those bodies is situated an immaterial mind, soul, soul spirit. So this goes back to Descartes. And the, the hope of the chapter was that I could show, just through sort of thought experiments and commonsensical reasoning, what goes wrong with those two alternative views. First, the physicalist view, where it goes, I think, disastrously wrong and less wrong for the um, dualist view, but also wrong in that there, there are things particularly surrounding how we understand how God interacts with uh, the material realm and with us and bridging this gulf between the physical and the non-physical experience in a human body. I think dualism runs into problems. And not only that, if we just look at people who have pursued physics as though it is the base reality, you end up with a version of physics that's a very strange reality and very hard to embrace as a base reality. It has all kinds of contradictions and conundrums that it throws up as though um, God in making the physical structure of the universe, in its part of its beauty is that it declares to you, 
I'm not the base reality. Don't look here if you're looking for what's what's the base reality. So that'd be kind of my my summary that I that I've landed personally on this idealistic view. I'm a Christian, and I think it comports really well with uh, how Scripture de- de- describes creation, God, humanity, how we relate. Um, but I'm certainly open to further dialogue. And I recognize that it's a, it's a little bit of a head scratcher when you first encounter it. So part of what I was trying to do in the chapter is maybe resolve some of the things that seem weird about it and let people uh, kind of think about it. Well, and I would, I would recommend the chapter that uh, Dr. Axe has written in the book, Minding the Brain. It's not written for the specialist. It's not written for the philosopher or a specialist in neurology. It's written to the uh, to somebody that's educated and just wants to find out more about it. So congratulations on your writing style, Doug. We didn't have, we didn't have the success with all of the uh, chapters in the book, but we, we did our best to enforce it. So thank you very much for being with us today. And thank you, Brian Krause, for co-hosting with me and walking me through things which I didn't understand. And I can tell you, I learned a lot during this, uh, during this uh, podcast and, um, uh, um, idealism all, all of a sudden kind of makes sense. So it's something I'm going to have to scratch my head about. So we've been talking to Dr. Doug Axe at Biola University about idealism. It's a chapter in the new book, Minding the Brain. And again, to find out more about the book, visit mindingthebrain.org. That's mindingthebrain.org. Uh, this has been a great, a great time together. Until next time we meet on Mind Matters News, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.